Okay, 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 let's get started. Open up your textbooks to page one. Very quickly, I wanna make sure that you have everything you need. Six number two pencils, little tiny pencil sharpener with the blade that breaks after three uses. Four of those big pink rubber erasers that leave the flaky stuff all over the papers. One huge jumbo notebook. After today, you should only have about 50 pages left out of 500 and a brown bag lunch, hopefully stuffed with apples for the teacher. Golden apples, solid gold apples for years truly. Lou Carloso, the host of Bankadelic, bringing you the second annual Bank to School special episode. Pull up your chairs. This is not a test. That comes much later in the year. Hang up your coats. Learn your lessons by rote. Go ahead and pass notes. It's back to school. Bank to school. Part two on Bankadelic. Well, listeners, I suppose I could tease all of you and say, or rather sing, Schools in for autumn. But we won't go there. Instead, where we are going to go is our second annual Bank to School podcast on Bankadelic. And we have five terrific guests, all at the head of the class. On today's episode, Nathan Baumeister, the CEO of Z Suite, Keith Riddle, the CEO of Bankify. Jeff Brown, the CEO of Highline, Landon Glenn, the CEO of Asa Financial, and Barry Kirby, the Senior Vice President of QNexus. Gentlemen, I'm going to start out with the proverbial icebreaker. If you could teach any subject in school, what would it be and why? And a quick disclaimer, you are not allowed to say Payments 101, Intro to FinTech, or Software as a Service for Dummies in your answer. Nathan, let's start with you. Well, Lou, that's pretty easy. I would teach the subjects how to do outdoor adventures and survive. Why? Well, it's very simple. Everybody should be going out and climbing mountains and skiing and backpacking and doing all that fun stuff. Most people are a little worried about it. They think they might die, but... I've actually known a lot of people, including myself, that have done it and have never died yet. <laughs> we'll try to keep the lucky streak going. Keith, let's go with you. What would you teach if you could teach anything in school? Yeah, thanks, Lou. So how to coach young people in a variety of sports without losing your mind or encountering belligerent parents. And I know that's a tall task, but the reason being is that I've had a lot of engagement with respect to coaching, really enjoy it. I think there's been a little bit of a deficiency in development of young folks and the ability to participate in athletics and be part of a team and see success and also understand adversity is something that's important for those young folks. So that would be something I would enjoy counseling people on. That is fabulous. Well, we've got plenty of stars here, yourself included. Jeff, what would you teach? I would teach math. So I just love solving problems. And in school, I was captain of the math team and competed fiercely. Got a few dozen trophies in the process. And so, yeah. Wow. So you were a math elite, huh? Indeed. 
Very good. Landon, Landon, what would you be teaching if you could teach anything? You know, I'd love to teach a class, something that, you know, I didn't get in school, but something on social skills. You know, I'm thinking kind of the positive reinforcement, confidence building, and just learning the value of creating opportunity and uplifting those around you. I want to sign up for your class. <laughs> Thank you. And Barry, the last and definitely not the least, maybe even the head of the class, the way things work at Bankadelic, what would you teach and why? I would first want to tell you that this is the first time I have been referred to as part of the head of the class. So <laughs> delighted to have this opportunity. And then for the class that I would teach would be psychology. Oh, wow. Why psychology? I am a big believer in from leadership or sales or marketing or just in a team environment, understanding how a human or a person processes their decision-making skills, the processes that folks go through helps us as leaders to position where we're trying to go and get to that end goal. So it's a very important thing for me on my end. Well, we just talked about all of the things that you might teach. And one thing that is not theoretical, that is actual, is how all of you lead. And it's a big part of why you're on the podcast today. And a really essential element of leadership, whether you're at the head of the class or you're the professor or you're doing research for some sort of paper, is understanding what's going on around you, the milieu in which you work and which we all work in. To that end, I would love to get your insights on what you think the industry learned over the last year. And you can include in that if you like what you learned. Well, this is Keith. I'll get it started. What I've learned personally, and certainly what the financial institutions seem to have learned over the last year, if they're serving businesses, so I'll speak from our perspective about the business segment within a financial institution, is the depth of disruptive activity that's occurred with the non-bank providers in fulfilling a role of a complete business cycle for the small business. So invoicing, collections, payments, lending, et cetera. And when you look at some of the staggering activity that's occurring, especially with like a Stripe or a Square who extended a billion dollars in loans in Q2, and that they're becoming more and more an important component with these businesses, and that's pulling it away from the financial institutions. So I think financial institutions have typically thought of fintechs in that same vein as disruptors versus enablers in organizations like our own this session in helping them to combat those factors, because if they don't, they're going to find that lending from a commercial perspective starts to go more and more into those fintechs. They'll lose financial institution relationships. And more importantly, they'll have a lack of an ability to grow the relationship and make that profitable from a variety of products and services and lending activities. So it's been astounding when you look at some of the numbers and activity and the depth of engagement from these non-bank providers in our perspective, again, our vertical of business and how that has been growing dramatically and where the FIs certainly are beginning to learn and we're learning a lot through that activity as well. This is Nathan. I definitely agree with Keith that there was a lot of learning in that regard. And just in general, there's been a lot of learning on the new software applications that exist to be able to help financial services firms actually work with commercial customers in a way that utilizes software. Whereas, you know, for a lot of the past, most of the innovations have been focused on consumers. One of the other things that I think that we all learned 
over the last year is, believe it or not, rates actually can increase and FidTech valuations can actually fall. <laughs> I think for a long time, for the amount of time that we were in a depressed rate environment, I think a lot of people thought that mortgage rates were going to stay low forever, that no one was ever going to earn anything on deposits again, and that the valuations of FinTech companies were just going to go up, 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 and up. And this last economic cycle definitely proved us wrong on both of those things. And it was a good reminder to all of us. Rates can increase? You're kidding. <laughs> yeah, it's weird. So this is very curvy. From my perspective, from a learning side of this, I would almost zoom out a little bit. And I kind of look at this with the half full glass here, which is, I think it's been fascinating to see the traditional FIs and credit unions and banks adapt to the changes that were forced upon them. One of the last few industries that have had to adapt, Amazon changed the retail environment, Apple changed the cellular and mobility market. And so I think they've really kind of opened their eyes. This is kind of a sleepy market. And it's been really encouraging to see everybody balk up and get in there and get their hands and their feet wet and jump right in. Yeah, this is Landon here. And I think over the last year, it's been really interesting to see in talking to some core processors in particular that for the first time ever, they're having financial institutions tell them that if they can't provide a way for them to get technology that their customers want, that they're going to leave. And so it's kind of highlighted the need for a path forward in the industry. And, you know, many are looking at open banking, but the concern there is that there can only be one winner. It kind of pits the fintechs and the financial institutions against each other in competition for the same customers and for the same accounts. And then again, you look at the banking as a service solution and there's a lot of regulatory hoops there and it requires a lot of fintechs to almost become financial institutions themselves. And that's not really what they're good at or what their main value proposition is. So it's been really interesting to hear from some of these core processors that the industry shifting and the behaviors are changing a little bit. You know, clients who had been great for years and years and years are now saying, hey, we need this or we're going to have to make a change. Hi, it's Jeff. I think the industry has really learned in the last year that you actually have to have a viable business model at the end of the day, that your valuation will be tied to the ability to actually generate profits. And so, you know, with this turning of the cycle, a number of businesses have been kind of caught off guard. And that's, you know, a way a healthy process to make sure the fintechs that are gaining share are doing it for good, rational businesses and just for healthy long-term industry. Outstanding. Great answers, everybody. And while the first question was definitely an icebreaker, here the ice has been broken and we are rubber hits the road reality, where I would love to know something about what your favorite subject or favorite discipline, favorite area in financial services is and why this doesn't necessarily have to be the area you work in, although it can be, but just something that you are really sinking your teeth into that makes you want to learn and makes you want to go. Well, this is Keith. I'll start it off. The area that I've been most engaged in and fascinated by has been this evolving payments landscape. And I've had a unique vantage point in that I've worked for a variety of payments firms and I've also had the opportunity to sit on some advisory committees and business committees for the Real-Time Payments Network and the Clearinghouse. And it has been 
fascinating to watch the transition along all of what I'd call the vertical touch points associated with payments. So whether it's things that have been in the marketplace for decades, like a bill pay that is now transitioned away from the FIs and more bill or direct, or merchants that are trying to continue to squeeze the transaction cost because of an interchange impact to them and accepting payments, or small businesses that want to optimize cash flow and take advantage of the most broad portfolio of payment support they can. And then these open frameworks that have evolved that have typically been more engaged in aggregation services and transitioning into becoming frameworks for money movement support or use cases that can facilitate that. The entire aspect of embedding payments and making sure that's a seamless part of an experience and an overlay or an open platform is fascinating to me and watching how that has evolved and continues to evolve rapidly and that hopefully institutions are aware of those strategies or aspects to participate in that changing field of payment support. So this is Barry from Unexus. From my perspective, I spent most of my career in a fintech or an FI and engaging directly with a consumer, whether it be deposits or on a lending side of the house. And having a son who's 13 and a daughter 10 now, I think it's fascinating to really see the Gen Z, how they perceive money and how they process it. I mean, my son, if he needs $10, he doesn't ask me for cash. He asked me to fill up his Apple wallet card. And <laughs> I wonder how does all of this play? What does all this look like from a traditional bank in 10 years? Because these kids will be out of school and working. And what does it all look like then? It's 10 years really isn't that far away. Yeah, my son it's remarkably similar in that he's 20 and I think since he was 13 or 14 maybe, he's been sending me Venmo requests. So I know he's out getting a haircut when something pops up on my screen and says, Christopher Carlozo has requested $35. I was like, back in the day when I needed money for something, I had to wait till my dad was home and then go up and ask him. So it's really a changing world. And I can only imagine what it's going to be like when the Gen Zs are in their 30s and what they'll be experiencing with their young kids and for themselves. It's just remarkable how fast technology is moving right now. It's funny, to your point, my niece graduated college not too long ago, and I asked her, what do you want for your gift card? And I was like, do you want me to write your check? And she was like, no, if you could just offer me an Uber subscription, that would be the best gift you could get me. And I was like, what? Like, what is this? Like, don't you want to buy a car? She's like, no, I just want to be able to move in and out and be able to want who pays for it. Yeah, Landon Glenn here with ASA. And, you know, one of my favorite subjects in financial services is financial empowerment. And that goes along with what you guys are talking about. And prior to ASA, I had a company called Bonsai that was in 50% of schools in America with a choose your own adventure style game that the kids would play to teach them finances. And it really opened my eyes to what we can do to empower individuals and promote financial wellness and ultimately being able to provide a way for banks and credit unions to give more choice, more opportunities to their account holders and just wider access to the technology to improve their financial health and education. And when I turned 18, my older brother helped me set up my very first credit card and took me under his wing. <laughs> he was an accounting major and it transformed my life. I didn't understand it. It had a hundred dollar limit. I'd pay it off each month and you know charge it up each month and I built credit. And so not everybody has that older brother that can help them to kind of learn 
how to get their feet wet and how to have a good financial future. Right on. This is Nathan. There's two subjects that I was thinking about. Neither of them are specific to financial services, but I do think that we need to spend a heck of a lot more time with them in our space. The first one, the course is called How to Build Products That People Will Actually Use. (laughs) It's so easy these days to build software that a lot of people just get an inkling of an idea, go out and build it. It used to be pretty easy to raise money to do that too. So they would just build a product. And then a lot of banks or other financial services firms would go to different conferences and different places where they could see demos and stuff like that. And be like, oh, that looks cool. Maybe I should license it. And a lot of innovation was done that way. And well, what ended up happening is it's not being used. And so really getting back to how do you develop those products people actually use, I think is one of my favorite subjects for sure that I spend a lot of time in. The other one is what else is going on in the world outside of our industry? It's so easy to get the blinders on where you stop looking around to see what else is going on in the world and how that might impact what we're doing. Several folks here just talked about Gen Z and what's going on in that particular generation and how many financial services firms aren't paying attention to that because it's not their core customer at the moment. As is always the case, you know, the millennials got older, Gen Z will get older, the generation after that will get older. But just understanding like Uber and whether they own cars or not, which was just brought up, that's a fascinating question. And what are the implications? And also, you know, just Uber drivers in general and this whole idea of the gig economy. Everyone in my company right now is just having a blast playing with AI generated images. I don't know what that has to do with financial services, at least not yet, but I bet there is going to be something there. And if you're not playing with those types of things and looking into it, you might lose something. And who knows, maybe in the future, uh, buying real estate and virtual reality could be more of a thing than it is right now. Oh, yeah. Web3 is going to be on everyone's lips in the next few years. And to your point, Nathan, there is a really outstanding podcast by the Web3 Marketing Association. They're based in London, and they just recently had a guest on who talked about putting up for sale land in the virtual world so you could buy a piece of Piccadilly Circus or you could buy beachfront property in California. While it sounds silly as all get out, some of this stuff is already being bid up. And the implications being that when the metaverse grows, what we can do with that virtual landscape remains to be seen. It could be absolutely incredible. And learning about what's going on around us, I would agree a thousand percent is so essential. Money connects to everything. People scoff at the idea of owning virtual real estate, but let's just ask the question real quick. What is money? (laughs) Oh yeah, absolutely. It's the faith that people place in something having value that really makes it go. This is Jeff. I always am fascinated to follow fraud in the financial space. I started my career in fraud prevention and it seems with you know, every new innovation that comes along, quickly the fraudsters follow with creative ways to steal money, even into the world of Web3 and crypto. Yeah, it's just a fascinating, never-ending battle between the innovative things you create and how do you keep it locked down. Yeah, it's amazing. I remember reading an anecdote where hackers were able to get into a bank through... At this, the security camera. They actually used the security camera against the bank to hack in and get a valuable information. It's absolutely unbelievable. I mean, I would absolutely believe it. And they attempt in so many different ways from phishing individuals to 
hacking the systems. It's just any way in, they will try to make it happen. Well, I was going to tell you, Lou, I'll support your question and your remark. This is a while back, but when we were picking a new data service hosting provider, we visited their headquarters and it's in an unknown location. There's no address. And so they're giving us a tour of this facility. And there's this giant digital board that shows the world. And there's all these lines coming out of Eastern Europe and all different countries into the US. And there's hundreds of thousands of these lines inbound into the US. And I asked them, I said, what is this? And they said, these are all denial of service attacks and fraudsters and folks trying to get into networks within the institutions. And I was like, is it always like this? And they're like, no, we see an uptick in May because that's when kids get out of school. I was like, that's, <laughs> that's pretty fascinating. Here we are on a back to school podcast. Maybe the fraudsters will start to turn down now that they're back in school. So, <laughs> Fraudsters, if you're listening, get back in the classroom or go to detention. Put that intelligence to work. Okay, with all of that established, some really outstanding shares there, we are facing this really odd financial season. Nathan, to your point earlier, who expected interest rates to go up? Who expected inflation to be such a big issue? High gas prices, a war that hits Russia and Ukraine against each other and is putting a chokehold on worldwide oil supplies. And then on top of this, climate and all sorts of goals surrounding sustainability. The environment is changing at a dizzying pace. And hey, let's not forget the fact that COVID-19 isn't entirely off the map yet. There are going to be some big tests. I'm wondering, in your view, what's the big exam going to be with this bank-to-school season? What do we need to really bone up on? Barry from Cunexus. I would say from my perspective, I think the one thing that's really challenging from our end, I think everybody probably shares this same attribute, is the rising cost and how difficult it is to source good talent. To your point about the Ukraine and Russian war, I actually had a CTO chat with yesterday at a conference who was using an offshoring firm in Romania and had mentioned that their cost of labor had gone up about 5x because of the war because it had pulled out so many talented developers. And it dawned on me, I was like, wow, I didn't really think about that all of that talent has been displaced. We're all kind of competing for the same people, but now we have 11,000 fintechs, whereas you know, maybe a couple of years ago, it was only 5,000. For us, it's a constant learning of where do we find good talent? Because every good product starts with really phenomenal people. And how do we continue to keep up with them and keep them engaged? Yeah, this is Keith. I think it's an add-on to that resource constraint, and that's not new, but maybe it's more exacerbated because of the economic conditions. And we think that the items that the FIs are going to be graded on are execution-related and things that go beyond the tech itself. I think each of the organizations on this session have outstanding technology and ways in which they deploy it and enable it for their clients. What we're finding is that financial institutions want to look at an accelerated way to at least get started that isn't taxing on those resources that are very precious or limited, as Barry indicated, and also can provide real results in terms of metrics and supporting their growth strategies and looking at their business segments and 
purpose-built messaging that helps them grow within that segment where they're focused and a cadence for those activities occurring so that they can have actionable insights that allow them to deploy at a faster rate and leveraging the exciting technology each of us supports, but do it in a way where it isn't attaching the IT resources, they can gain results, and they can move into iterative stages of making it more expansive. So I think they're going to be graded on can they do that in an accelerated fashion and can they look at those tangible customer acquisition and or engagement stats or performance metrics to continually gauge their level of success. This is Jeff. I think the big test for a number of institutions, especially on some of the fintech side, is going to be how their credit portfolios hold up in this very high inflationary environment where kind of across the business, consumers are being constrained on their ability to pay and ability to meet obligations. And it's going to cause a very different credit downturn versus the usual recession. It's been kind of a very different pattern and very different tools needed to respond to it. Yeah, Jeff, I totally agree with you. This is Nathan. I think there literally is a test going on right now because after the financial crisis in 2008 and 2009, there was a lot of pressure for banks to be better prepared for something like that event again. You know, capital ratios and all those types of things were pushed up higher than they've ever been. And so as we turn into this recession brought in by many, many different factors, Lou, as you already shared, how well did the financial services sector, specifically within the banks and credit unions, prepare for something like this? And, you know, part of it's going to be the credit portfolio, but overall asset liability management is going to be put to the test. You're looking at inflation, you're looking at rising rates, you're looking at questions on credit worthiness, while you're also looking at these huge factors that are changing expectations of what people expect financially with the technology aspects coming in. You have blockchain, a lot of talk about cryptocurrency, but there's also so many applications, blockchain off of cryptocurrency. They have to figure out what's going on with payments. RTP network, as someone had already mentioned, but then FedNow just announcing, they say they're going to come out first half of next year. Every single bank is trying to figure out, do I do anything with banking as a service and all those types of things? But then if I do banking as a service, how does that impact my asset liability management? I mean, there's just so many things for them to be thinking about in really tight conditions, the final exam makes me more think of the Harry Potter series because you know how at the end of every school year, they didn't just have a final exam. They had multiple final exams and had to get their owls and those types of things. So I think bankers are kind of in that spot right now where it's like, all right, you're going to have to take all the disciplines that you've been working on and figure out what you're going to do as all this stuff is up in the air being juggled. Hey, bankers, can you say Thungardian Levioso? <laughs> it is a Harry Potter environment right now to a certain extent. So landing Glenn with Asa and, you know, one of our investors who was the head architect of Zelle, he had said that two to 4,000 banks and credit unions will be able to disappear because of the pace of innovation and not being able to keep up over the next five to 10 years. And you know, a lot of that comes from the regulatory and compliance risk. If you look at the average American, they don't understand why their bank or credit union doesn't have apps for budgeting and paying off debt and investing and college and buying homes and all the different great things out there. They don't understand, you know, the risk and the liability associated with that. They just know that they can't get that tech there. So they have to go to the Apple App Store and download it and 
end up getting solutions that are going to compete directly with their institution. And so one of the biggest things that we're going to have to figure out, and that's why we built ASA, is a solution where the user can be in control of their data, have privacy, self-sovereign identity, and be able to control their data and their technology and be able to solve a lot of that liability and risk that comes from partnering with fintech. And so customers want fintech, banks want to partner with fintech, fintechs want to partner with banks, and it's just figuring out an easier way for them to do it. Absolutely, there is no doubt about that. Really some outstanding points. And class is about to be dismissed, but before we do that, gentlemen, I wanna thank all of you for making the time to be on the podcast, you have really given a lot of yourselves and your value to this discussion today. Thank you so much. Thank you. Great being on. Thanks. Thanks, Luke. Nathan Baumeister is the CEO of Z Suite. Keith Riddle, the CEO of Bankify. Jeff Brown, the CEO of Highline. Landon Glenn, CEO of Asa Financial. And Barry Kirby, the Senior Vice President of QNexus. You can find all of them on LinkedIn. And as for me, look for the guy sitting in the corner with the dunce cap on his head, getting ready to serve six weeks detention, Lou Carlozo. And yes, you can also find me on LinkedIn. Well, what a fantastic episode. We really did learn a lot I took lots of notes. You know why? Because I plan on cheating. It's what I do. (laughs) But I'll tell you what. I hope as you start off on your autumn adventure, wherever that takes you, whatever school of thought, whatever classroom of learning and being enlightened, that we gave you a little something to help spur the journey. It's really our wish at Bankadelic that... We gave you something that will help you laugh a little bit, think, and most importantly, take another step forward into making the financial services landscape a better place. But if you're out on the sandlot, for crying out loud, please don't pick on the kid who is having trouble catching the football. Because that kid might just be me, and you know who I'm related to. Johnny the Big, you're picking on my son. I need to have a little word with your parents, if you know what I'm saying. Special thanks to our sponsors, Quantic Bank, Banker Hire, Lemonade LXP, and the one and only William Mills Agency. Catherine Laws was our woman behind the scenes, putting it all together. The principal, if you will. For Bankadelic, this is Lou Carlozo saying, class dismissed. Until next time. Bankadelic is a production of NMD Plus, London, Chicago, and Austin, Texas. Okay, 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 let's get started. Go ahead and pass notes.